the recording of this Zoom call. So no masturbating, ladies. <laughs> Put that dildo down. <laughs> Brittany. <laughs> the only thing I have in my lap is Appa. <laughs> Aw, Appa. And Appa would never. <laughs> too pure, too pure. <laughs> Well, hi, I'm Gabby. I'm a senior library assistant, and I like guacamole. Hello, I'm Amanda. I'm a children's librarian, and I like avocado toast. Hi, I'm Brittany, and I'm a library services supervisor, and I like avocados in general. And this is the avocado Ask us this. <laughs> you guys made that one hard. <laughs> uh, I don't always mean to match what Gabby's saying, but my brain is like not working. And then you say something and I'm like, I'm going to say something similar. So. Yeah. I wonder if we should prepare. <laughs> nah. Prepare. I mean, we are librarians. So. <laughs> Um, I prepared guacamole. Ooh. <gasps> what? Do you actually have guacamole? I, I do. That's It was my inspiration. Oh, man. I feel like, yeah. Have y'all ever had the H-E-B guacamole? No. No, I love H-E-B, though. I bet it's good. It is really good. It's weirdly perfect. And whenever my friend who lives near Austin would drive up to Dallas, she would bring a giant tub of the H-E-B guacamole and we would devour it. Huh. Yeah, I've never been in an H-E-B. Yeah, they're oh. not. They're magical. They're not really up in the, the North Texas area, but. No. <laughs> no, I think the closest one is like 45 minutes away. And sometimes I think it might be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> At least y'all have Bucky's now, though. Yes. There's oh, one 10 minutes from my house. I'm so jealous. I think the closest one to me is, like, in Denton or something. Yeah. They have great bathrooms, random aside. Yeah. Always very and clean. Yes. Listening to this, it's not from Texas. It's just, like, this one. <laughs> what, what is an H-E-B? What is a Bucky? Yeah. <laughs> what is a Bucky? <laughs> Bucky Barnes. <laughs> Who the hell is Bucky? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so for those of you outside of the South, because I think they have Bucky's in a couple of places other than Texas now, mm -hmm. but it is a gas station, but it is like a road trip Mecca. So they have very clean bathrooms. Like every time you go in there, they're clean. They have uh beaver nuggets <laughs> they're delicious which are not made of beaver no or, beavers were harmed yeah and they're not actually nuggets um they're like caramel corn kind of yeah and like uh brisket they have brisket mm -hmm. and um yeah just if you see a bucky's if in your travels you need to stop you will spend a hundred dollars but you need to stop um and then H-E-B is a grocery store <laughs> yeah <laughs> basic 
when you when you hit a certain age, you find certain ma- grocery stores magical. <laughs> yeah. So random news this week, uh, there was a reporter from the New York Post, I want to say, or uh, New Yorker, New, New Yorker. Yorker, yeah, um, who was on a Zoom call with his colleagues and was caught uh, masturbating when he thought his camera was turned off, um, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's been all over library Twitter for some reason and people being like making jokes or saying basically like that there's no excuse for this kind of behavior, which totally agree with. Yeah, I don't know how you don't know at this point in COVID world how you don't know how breakout sessions work on Zoom. Like, you have to know that. Yeah. <laughs> and like, what? General, like him thinking that his camera was off. But let's, yeah. let's, let's like really look at the, the fact why did he feel the urge to masturbate when he was in a meeting anyway? Right? Yeah, nasty. That's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like also with in regards to the not knowing your camera was off thing. Did we learn nothing from the woman who was pooping on on camera? <laughs> Which is much less gross than <laughs> masturbating on camera. I will say it's a million times less yeah. gross. How many people were in the meeting with him? I don't uh, I don't know. I know two people anonymously talked about it or like confirmed these details. So it was not a one-on-one. There were multiple people. Well, there are enough people to have breakout sessions, right? So it Mm -hmm. was not a, a small gathering. And like, if voyeurism is your thing, like that's cool, but you still, the consent part is super critical. Uh, and you should not be, yeah, work during work hours, unless that is your job, but mm-hmm. it was not his mm-hmm. job. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't he let go from the job, too, though? I think he's just been suspended. I don't think he's been officially fired. What? I don't yeah. think. I may be wrong. That's what the latest thing that I saw said, but yeah, it's just like, at this point, even if it were an accident, like, you should know better by now, because you... I'm very paranoid about my computer being on and my camera being on and I will like close my laptop, you know, just, I don't even want people to overhear my random conversations I have or to watch me practice guitar accidentally or something, you know, I'm like very paranoid about it. So I can't imagine what your excuse would be at this point. Yeah, and you're at work. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, I have on my laptop where it's this thing where I can slide it and it covers the camera. Do that at least. Like, if you're going to be watching porn on your computer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how we're talking about this in a library-related podcast, but... <laughs> well, be- watching porn on your computer is very library-related. That is true. <laughs> and not advised. <laughs> not advised. Don't watch porn on library computers. It makes everyone deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> it's gross. <laughs> As Brittany said, yeah, nasty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no. I remember um, it being a trending topic on Twitter yesterday with Zoom dick, and I'm like, Zoom dick? What? what is going on? Why is it a trending thing? And then I was like, oh, God, why did I click on this? <laughs> yeah, it's a good call. 
I don't click on those trending on Twitter things anymore. I'm like, I don't even want to know. <laughs> I only do if I'm afraid someone has died. Like if Betty White's trending, I'm like, oh no. Ah, oh, she just well, made a cool cute video. Your, take that out of the air. Like you <laughs> I'm knocking. I'm knocking. We cannot lose Betty. We can't. Okay, we cannot. No. No, 2020. Get thee behind me, Satan. So what we're uh, talking about this week is elections. What are libraries doing for elections this year during COVID? Because it's such a strange and different time. Normally, our library, for instance, would host the League of Women Voters to register people to vote. We would print out ballots. We would distribute voter guides. Um, and different things like that. We would help people by answering reference questions and showing them where to sign up to vote online and so forth. So it's a little bit different this year because we don't have people physically in our locations. So what are y'all's libraries doing? Um, well, with our libraries now being kind of being open, um, we're limiting how many people can be in and what services that they can do. So they can come in and you know, use the computers, browse and check out items, but they can't come in and just hang out and read or anything like that. Um, and one of our locations is an early voting location. Um, hmm. So there's that going on while the building is being open for the people to come in and use the library. Um, but yeah, uh, in the past, we've had another one of our branches be an early voting place, and it's not this year. Uh, and kind of similar to what you were saying, Amanda, how you know, we would give out like the voters guide and we would usually have um, like the Texas Women's Voters League. Is that what it's called? Yeah. They would come in and do kind of, you know, information sessions to let people know, you know, hey, these are the candidates that are coming up. Um, and then we have registration cards and we're still giving those out. Um, and I think we're really going to, we're trying to push so when people, well, before the registration deadline for Texas, um, I know that they were wanting to push to make sure every time somebody would come in to get a library card to give out the registration card to them as well. Like, hey, by the way, here's your registration. Mm -hmm. So thinking, you know, maybe you're new to the area, so you're getting a library card so you can get registered for where you're going now. Um, and something we were doing at my branch was sort of uh, print on demand, I guess, services. Before the registration deadline passed, we were printing out directions um directly to i don't the polling office i can't remember what it's officially called but you could take your registration directly there instead of risking putting it in the mail and all of that so we were giving people directions to that location that wasn't too far from our library and now um we're printing directions for people to their polling locations uh we've confirmed registration status for people. Um, we've helped them do that. Um, wow. Yeah, it sounds like y'all are doing a lot of the things that um, we would normally be doing if our buildings were open because your buildings are partially open. Yeah. <laughs> and we did the, um, I really liked how at your library, Amanda, how you guys had that website, mm -hmm. the page where it gave a lot of voting information. And so, um, Pretty much as soon as we got done recording that podcast episode where you told me about that, I went to my supervisor and the director and was like, can we get this done? Can we get this on our website? And we, so we have that up as well, pointing people to, you know, hey, you're not sure where you vote. Here's the website. Here's information on candidates. Here's some fact-checking websites. Nice. 
Um, but yeah, and so we have that as well online and we've had some posts through our social media and on our library website by saying like, hey, voting's happening right now, educate yourself in these ways. Yeah, so that's uh, one of the things that we're doing. We have an elections pay website that points patrons to different resources and how to register to vote and all that good stuff. Washington is a vote by mail state. So we get all of our ballots in the mail and we can return them to ballot boxes. And a lot of the libraries have ballot boxes outside of the buildings. And we also um, have free postage on our ballots. So you can just drop it in the mail if getting to a ballot box is too much of a burden for you. So there's lots of really easy ways to vote in Washington. You don't have to go to a polling place. Um, you don't have to apply for vote by mail special thing because everybody is vote by mail. It's really super simple, but usually we would also help people print out ballots because uh, you have to fill in the bubbles by hand. And some people can't do that for various reasons. So we would help them fill out the ballot on the computer and then they would print it out with the bubbles pre-filled in and then they would uh, submit that in the ballot box instead of the one they got in the mail. We also have a tweet from Miss Brandy, one of my colleagues at the KSWLA, who talked about Pierce County Libraries, where I also used to work, um, and how they are designated points of assistance. So they're helping people with registration and replacement ballots, and they also have a drop box, ballot box. And they've also been giving out postcards to every single curbside order, reminding people to vote and um, with links to their website that tells them how to vote. I really like the idea of putting the postcard in with the checkouts as a reminder. I also, I would say you could also maybe do that with like the sample ballot for your county or city. So people could look at that ahead of time. Um, want to do that but <laughs> spoiler like I'm over like communications for the library and to get the website up they, I got quick approval because our director is amazing and she looked it over she's like yes this looks good let's go with it but then the city is like any wording that has to do with voting or the election has to go through us so mm -hmm. for a bit, we had to take it down and then it was down for a few days and I it's back up, but um, so I'm wondering how weird they would be about us actually having like physical things that we're giving out to every resident, mm -hmm. every library card person who comes through. I'm gonna ask about it, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering if only if they know. Haha, <laughs> 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 wink, wink. They will know, and um, and so yeah, it's just. Because that's a good idea, but... Because a blank ballot, like, it's nonpartisan, right? Because it has all party options on it at this point. I could see where in a prime, like, where you would have either the Republican or the Democratic ballot, like, that would be problematic. But since it's all together now, it's nonpartisan. I mean, it's just informational. It's... I'm just saying. <laughs> Anybody that has worked uh, in municipalities or for any government entity at all knows that there's red tape. And you have to Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't oh, to look into that, but that's awesome that they're doing that. Yeah. And by the way, I'm jealous of you in Washington and how easy it is to vote. Texas is one of 
the worst with voter suppression and how difficult and expensive it is to vote and it's terrible yeah I remember when I voted in my first election and just how confusing it was and how there are different places where you go to so because they separate out the primaries so you can vote in either the democratic or the republican primary but not both and then you have to figure out where to go and there were these like judgy old ladies who saw me and were like oh she's dressed like a punk kid I bet she's gonna vote democrat and I'm like I am but you know what don't judge people you're poll workers you know this isn't bridge club at the old folks home (laughs) (laughs) which that brings up Gabby you had the question earlier about what you could wear um so I was I didn't know how different this is different in Washington yeah so I was like, on my Instagram earlier today, I posed the question, like, because I've seen a lot of people taking selfies post-voting, which I love, here for that, um, but a lot of people I know have had very candidate-specific clothing on. So I had been under the impression that you're not allowed to do that, and after some research, thank you, Brittany, um, it, technically, you are, you are not supposed to do that because it's speaking to one candidate or the other it can be considered voter intimidation or there's another word that i can't think of right now for it um so my question was like are you wearing these into the polling place like is it just that people aren't enforcing this or do we have so many new poll workers this year that like they can't keep up with it is it the same in washington is that a federal thing Maybe it's a federal thing. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, like I was saying, the in-person voting in Washington is very limited. It's sort of like by appointment only because it's vote by mail. So I don't know the answer to that. But I was, I remember that from when I lived in Texas that you weren't allowed to have signs outside voting voting places. You weren't allowed to be carrying signs or even have like pins on your chests that were like recommending a candidate over another one so I would assume that applies to shirts as well but I I don't know like yeah like they're probably just so overwhelmed in terms of the voter turnout that they're seeing that they're not bothering to enforce the rule so if you do have some fun voting gear like be safe and don't get turned away from the poll because I can't ask you to leave uh wear a cardigan or something over it and then strip that top layer off and take your (laughs) post-voting selfie (laughs) afterwards just to be on the safe side especially if you're in texas and right not voting for trump Mm -hmm. um please we need there's already every vote session and we just need to make sure you you're voting without anybody stopping you i do know that i have my sister made me a ruth bader ginsburg descent collar necklace and I wore that when I went to vote on Saturday and I was hesitant because I was like, okay, is this considered even like too political to be wearing to go voting? Thankfully, they let me vote. There were no issues with it. One of the poll workers even complimented. She's like, and she called it a collar. So she knew what it was. She's like, I really like your collar. And I'm like, thank you so much. And then the guy who's giving out the stickers, he's like, it really brings your outfit together. And I'm like, thank you, sir. <laughs> like, <laughs> about you know hey that's not okay but then I do know at uh one of the area libraries not the city that 
we, Gabby and I work at, but for another one that's nearby, it's an early voting location and somebody came in with a Trump ring, like a big honking Trump ring to vote. And they were turned away. They weren't, they didn't even let them take it off and vote. They're like, you need to leave. You have to come back in without it on. So I guess it really, maybe it depends on like how blatant it is. Mm. Mine, I had my cardigan on, my necklace was over it. And so you couldn't see the whole necklace. You could just see it peeking through. Um, And so I don't know. Plus theoretically, uh, the judges are supposed to be nonpartisan. This is true. There you go. Thank you. I mean, but are they? Anyway. Are they? No, they're not. (laughs) That's another podcast all on its own. Yeah, don't wear like, you know, fuck Trump or, you know, vote for Biden or vice versa. If you're yeah. intentional, at least, because I don't want anybody not to be able to vote. Even if you're, for some reason, voting for Trump, I'd like you to still be able to vote. Like, I would yeah. you have that Everyone right. should be able to exercise their yeah. right to vote. Exactly. So yeah, everybody go vote. Vote. Vote if you can. Vote them if you got them. <laughs> and if you're not sure um how to figure out if you're registered where you are you can message us and we can librarian it for you absolutely in the right direction so what are you guys currently reading so i just finished mexican gothic by sylvia moreno garcia it was amazing it's perfect for the spooky season i read it in two days over my vacation it's the story of a 1950s Mexican socialite who gets a mysterious letter from her cousin who just got married in a whirlwind engagement and is living on an English manor in the Mexican countryside with her new in-laws and creepiness ensues. I've heard so, amazing yeah. things about it. it. It's really good. It's God, it hits all of those like classical spooky vibes of, you know, creepy house, fog rolling in, uh, torrential rain, and so forth. Um, it also kind of had a, I felt like a Lovecraft kind of vibe to it a little bit. Because there's, I don't know, I wouldn't know if, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say that it's not really about a haunted house necessarily. I think it's more about the sort of like, creepiness of the nature of the house (laughs) i don't know that might be too spoilery okay does it read like a gothic novel it does it really does i think it's like you know the main character is very plucky i would say you know she's got a lot of tenacity and it has a lot of the creepy elements that you would expect from a gothic horror just you know, beats of like, you know, her being in her room and like noticing that the window doesn't open and, you know, creepy stuff like that where you're like, ah, you're trapped in this creepy house in the middle of nowhere. It's hard to get to and from this place. And um, people are slowly going mad because, you know, I love people slowly going mad. <laughs> yeah, like Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, gothic novels are a hit or miss for me. So that's what I was asking. I've heard amazing things about it. I will read it sometime. But. <laughs> What about you, Gabby? What are you reading? I just finished reading Dread Nation by Justina Ireland, and it was amazing. Um, it is a alternate historic horror fiction, young adult, 
and looks at the world with a what if zombies had risen right after the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm. Um, yes. And it takes, so it is a zombie novel. So very excellent for this time of year. Um, it also is a social discourse and a political discourse um, woven into a great story. Like you're not hitting the head with those things. It's very just beautifully intrinsic to what the story is. And so it follows this girl, Jane. She goes to a school that trains young women, uh, specifically young black women, to be what are called attendants to protect upper class ladies from zombies. <laughs> she is funny and badass. It's just it's just so well done. Highly recommend. Yes, if you like zombie stuff, read it. If you like uh, historical fiction with a twist, read it. And that's Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. And I'm really excited to read the second book in the ser- in the series. That's another one that's on my TBR. So good. <laughs> I'm a huge horror fan, so you'd think I'd be reading a horror novel right now. And I've been reading a lot of like spooky fall vibes books, and I had tons of scary books on my to read list for October. But I was getting tired of reading like the same genre over and over again, so I needed to change it up a little bit. And I saw the trailer for I think it's going to be out on Netflix, Christmas Day. Um, Bridgerton. Um, it's based off of the Bridgerton series. Um, by Julia Quinn, which is a historical romance um, series. And I'm not a huge romance reader in general or historical romance. I've read a few. But I was like, oh, that show looks so cute. I'm going to read that. <laughs> really just for the moment. So I'm reading The Duke and I by Julia Quinn, which is the first in the series. It's cute. It has some of the tropes that I really love. Like a whole, I love the whole fake dating trope <laughs> in romance. <laughs> Like, where it's like, oh, they're secretly dating, but then they fall for each other. Ooh. <laughs> um, and then there's also the whole, like, um, the, the love interest is uh, best friends with her older brother, which I love that, too. Um, but yeah, so it's good. It's set during, like, in Regency England, and each book in the series is about one of the Bridgerton children. This one is about the oldest daughter, Daphne, and um, one quirky thing about this family there's eight kids, and each one um, of their names is uh, the, the first, the letter and the alphabet. So, like the first one, the oldest is Anthony. The next one is Benedict. The next one's Colin. So it's like A B C D E F G H. Um, but yeah, no, it's just it's a fun, cute read. Um, I'm ready though now to pick up another Halloweeny book <laughs> after this one. So it's been a nice little break. That's what I'm reading. Nice. So that was Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. And The Duke and I by Julia Quinn. We are the Ask Us Desk because we answer your questions about libraries, librarians, library services, and anything you like. You can reach us at Ask Us Pod on social media or send us an email at askuspod at gmail.com. So ladies... What are our questions today? I pulled a couple of questions from Reddit. So the first question I have is from the user Vinyl File, who asks about staff eating areas during the pandemic and any policies around that. They say, hello, I wanted to hear how other libraries are handling staff eating areas during COVID. Things that come to mind are masks required while not eating, 
How many people at a time? Table spacing? Any plastic dividers or similar to those at a reference desk? Any other thoughts about this? Uh, so at our branch, uh, we have a couple of options. We have study rooms that are not open to the public currently. So we have staff members who will take their break in there um, so they can have their mask off and just have a nice mask-free break without worrying about it. And then they're responsible for wiping it down and cleaning it up after they are finished. We do have staff members who take their break in our break room. Um, usually not more than two or three at a time and they stay spaced out. It's been discouraged from anybody eating at their desk. Just because of the way our desks are laid out, it can be open or shared spaces and you don't, just out of courtesy, so no one comes around a corner and you don't have your mask on and, you know, it's like underwear, right? You don't <laughs> want to be, you don't want to be caught with it down. Um, or do you? <laughs> what's his name? Jeff Tubin. <laughs> And, and I also know, including myself, occasionally uh, we eat in our cars because, <laughs> again, it's a safe space where you don't have to wear a mask. So, yeah, that's, that's what our branch is doing. There, we don't have a, like, formal set of rules. It's just everybody's trying to be respectful of everybody else's space and be mindful of what everyone is comfortable with. Yeah, the location I've been going into... Um, people will go into the study rooms and they'll eat or take breaks in the study rooms one by one. And then they have this kind of thing outside of the study rooms that marks like, okay, this is the last time somebody was in there. And everyone is really good. Even at the desks, whenever you're working with the public, everyone's really good at making sure you're cleaning after you're done. So, and then people will sometimes usually just clean beforehand or they start somewhere just in case. But like Gabby said, I usually will just go eat in my car, go to a fast food place, get food, not super healthy, but, um, and then just chill in my car while I listen to a podcast or read. Yeah, I don't know what the best solution is other than that. Yeah, my library, we have a very strict set of rules at each location. Before we went back into the buildings, because we took a long time to get back into our buildings and we're very deliberate about it, each location had to come up with a map of the floor plan and designate areas for different things. So each branch has designated eating locations and a lot of them are our study rooms at the locations. And there are wipes uh, in each of them. So you're expected to wipe before and after you use the space. And the idea is if you're taking off your mask for an extended period of time to eat a meal, it has to be in an area like a study room that's enclosed where, you know, you're not breathing the same air as everyone else, I guess, is the idea. Um, so that's kind of, I take most of my breaks in there. I don't super love sitting in my car because it hurts my back and I try not to drive very often or sit in my car in general. Um, so <laughs> that's just me, but I do like that idea because then you know for sure, like I'm the only person who's been in this space um, so that's pretty safe. And you get to listen to podcasts, which is a good point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I normally bring my lunch and oh yeah, and we have, I guess, the break rooms that have the microwave and the refrigerator and you're not allowed to hang out in there. You're only allowed to be in there to basically microwave your food and grab your food from the refrigerator and that's it. So you're not supposed to be in there. We also have all of the cabinets locked 
And so there's no way to access the utensils or the cups or anything, which wow. is really awkward the first day I was back because uh, I didn't realize that or I'd forgotten that. And I didn't even bring like a bottle of water with me. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I'm going to be like dead by the end of this day. But luckily I was close to like a convenience store. So I just walked over and bought a bottle of water. But I had a, a, a little moment of panic because I thought, oh. And then another day, a different day, I forgot to bring a spoon for my soup. <laughs> oh, no. Because <laughs> I'm just so used to using what we have at work. But I survived. I just drank it out of the bowl like a barbarian. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's harsh. With no, no utensils. I mean, I get it, but. Yeah, I don't trust people to thoroughly wash things and I don't trust the sponges that they leave in the sink for 12 years good call good call (laughs) yuck that was that question um this that person asked that question because their library is closed to the public and they have staff just kind of eating wherever and they were a little concerned about that um especially being out in the open area spaces like y'all were talking about like eating at your desk and so forth which that that does kind of worry me too I mean I will take off my mask really quick to drink water from my water bottle but I'll do my best not to breathe out (laughs) like I'll just remove it and drink my water and then breathe out when I put the mask back on so I'm just trying to be like super respectful of of that Mm. but yeah I think that eating in an open air space is probably pretty risky but the next question is from user Pasha. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Any project suggestions for pages during quarantine? My library has been closed to the public except curbside since March. They are no longer allowing us to work from home. We've shelf read the entire library multiple times, done vast amounts of weeding, and we even put the board books in order. Wow. <laughs> On Friday, there was nothing for all of us to do, so we were just cleaning shelves again. Does anyone have any tests or activity suggestions that they could bring up to their library manager to give them stuff to do? That's hard if their library is still closed. Yeah, I mean, if they're doing any virtual programming, maybe help with that. What is the librarian? What are the librarians doing? Why can't the pages help in some way and get maybe some on-the-job training for things? There are sometimes, like at our library, for instance, uh, we are unionized, so sometimes there are certain tasks that you can't do. Currently, we've been doing an inventory of every single book in the library, which has been exhausting, but also catching a lot of weirdness. Because um, if you go through every single book and match it up to a list of what's in the ILS, you'll notice that there are books on the shelf that aren't in the system anymore, and there are also books on the list that have gone missing, and you reconcile those, or you find a ton of books that are just miscatalogued, I guess, and you can fix those. So that's pretty time-consuming, and it doesn't sound like they've done that yet. Uh, maybe they include that in the vast amounts of weeding they talked about, but I feel like th- this is something that I can't imagine ever doing under normal circumstances just because it it takes like a lot of time to do, and I don't think that I would normally have time to do that. I barely have time to do my normal weeding under <laughs> normal circumstances when I'm 
working at a location that's fully open. So I think that would be a good task. Yeah, I would recommend maybe if book lists need to be updated, um, maybe a series audit to go through and see if you're missing volumes from Janet Ivanovich or Bridgerton. <laughs> Bridgerton. <laughs> yeah, Julia Quinn or <laughs> anybody else uh, to find, you know, gaps in series. I can say your pages probably know your collection pretty well. So those would be probably easy tasks for them to do, especially if they're on site and can actually go see what authors you have already on the shelf. Or maybe the library can be reorganized in some way that would better serve the public, you know, because this would be a perfect time to do it if you're building. Mm -hmm. Collection shifting projects. Yeah, we, before this whole thing happened, we had just separated out our uh, juvenile nonfiction. It was all interfiled, which I, <laughs> I have this problem that nobody else seems to be as passionate about where I work, but I'm very much a stickler for the call number on an item meaning something. <laughs> so like if the call number says J uh -huh. before the number, that indicates that it is in a different location than the other things. <laughs> like to me, like the call number means something. If you're going to interfile all of nonfiction, don't include the J in the call number, put a sticker on it that labels it so people can see on the shelf. Like, I don't know, for, for me, I'm just like, the, the call number should indicate to the person who's in the library where to find it. Like that's the yes. purpose of the, that's the point? Um, yeah. Just, hold on. Are you saying that you literally have all of your nonfiction together, like children's and adults? Yes. And they're all under different collection codes. So when you run a report, like an inventory report on the collection, you're not getting the whole picture. You're just getting like the adults or the children's or the teens, um, or even in some cases, the comic books, because we still shelve the comic books in the 700s with the art books. Um, so it's like, it's very frustrating to me and nobody else seems to care, but I am very much like a stickler for like making things make sense and easy yes. to navigate in, in buildings. You're a librarian. Yeah. As you should. <laughs> yeah. But it's just like one of those things where every time I bring it up, people kind of like roll their eyes or like, it would just be like too much work to fix or, you know, something like that. But I just, it really bothers me, the, the, especially the comic books, because I actually did one of my, um, my big projects for library school. I did on like cataloging graphic novels and how to store graphic novels in a library setting. In an ideal world, we would be able to do most of the graphic novels by, I'm going on a tangent now because I'm very passionate about this. Get <laughs> but, it. But most of the graphic novels for adults that have um, that are just single stories. They're not part of a longer like ser series or superhero story, for instance, um, should be shelved under, you know, just the way that fiction is shelved under, you know, possibly like G in to, you know, reference that it's a graphic novel and then author's last name. And things that are uh, specific to certain publishers, like things that are DC versus Marvel, for instance, they should be in different sections. 
like this might be going too far for a lot of people because I know at least in some libraries they do have the superhero books labeled Gia and Superman, for instance. But in my mind, if you're a comic book consumer, you know the difference between the different publishers and you know what you're looking for when you go to those different areas. So I would even go so far as to say like GNDC Batman or something like that so that everything is kind of together. You know, if you're looking for Batman, Aquaman, Catwoman, you go to the DC shelf. If you're looking for, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy or Captain America, you go to the Marvel shelf. Um, but that's just kind of how I think it should be because that's how comic book consumers find things. I am a hundred and I a hundred percent agree with you. It would make accessibility so much easier. Yeah, I agree with that as well. But I have a question about your branch that you work at, Amanda. Mm-hmm. You know, if the um, the staff there that you're saying they're not really interested in like you know organizing thing and things in like um, an understandable way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Are those people who have worked there for a long time, or is this like the first time library they've ever worked at? Have they worked at other libraries before? Yeah, this is a complicated question because this is actually the largest library system that I've ever worked for. So I do try and keep that in perspective in that it's kind of a beast in that there is so much material and there are so many locations and there are so many different opinions about how things should be done that it's not as easy as say like you know when I worked at the Frisco Public Library and it was just one library you know like you can kind of make up your own rules when you're working at a smaller system but I think slowly strides have been made it just depends on who's in that in those positions and how much they care about that because we had a really excellent collections manager who just took on the children's graphic novels. So they are, in fact, now being labeled as J, G, N, and then either author last name or series name. And I really loved that and was glad that they were able to make that happen. But, you know, why stop there? <laughs> let's do let's do the teen next and let's do the adult ones next. Um, yeah. You know, um, because, you know, Seattle's such a huge system, is each branch kind of different in how they organize their collections? Oh, yes. This is the other frustrating thing, is that, um, so the comic books are especially egregious because each location, you know, there's no, they're all labeled, the teen and the adult are labeled just with the Dewey Decimal number. That's it. So it's, <laughs> so it's really frustrating to the staff who were trying to organize it in a way that made it more accessible. So they, some branches handmade like letter labels, like hand wrote like B on a little round sticker and tapes that to the spine of the book so that all the Batman books would be in the Bs. And this is infuriating because while that's a better way to organize that for browsing, it makes it impossible to find an item on the shelf whenever you're actually looking for it. 
So if you have the call number, is that call number is basically useless now because you've put a sticker on the spine. So now you have to go through all the Bs. And if you can't find it there, maybe it's misshelved in the nonfiction somewhere. And it's just like so frustrating to me. And I think that if you're gonna do something like that, that's an indication to me that at a system level, we need to change the way that we catalog it because that is clearly the desire of most people who are searching for that type of material for it to be stored that way. But you can't do both. You can't have a, an official call number and then some like ad hoc thing that you're doing at each location where you have a homespun rule of, okay, now I'm separating out the manga, but there's no way for you to know that except just by looking at the shelf. <laughs> like, it's like insane. Yeah, that would annoy me as a patron. Like being like, okay, these things don't match up. I usually go to this branch, but now I'm visiting this one. How oh, I yeah. And it's the only way to know where something is in the library is to ask someone, which is that's ridiculous. Good at all. <laughs> yeah, it's like that that's why I separated out the children's nonfiction and my coworkers were like, Oh, you should interfile the easy nonfiction with the children's nonfiction. And I was like, No, no, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> the whole point is like we have picture books that are nonfiction that are <laughs> that are labeled easy nonfiction. And I'm like, just then they'll be all in one place. I'm like, no, no, no. This is why we're separating them out. Because it says in the catalog, easy nonfiction. If you don't have an easy nonfiction collection section in your branch, but it says in the catalog that that's where it is, that's so frustrating. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So that's my soapbox. I will politely step down from my soapbox. And... Uh, and go on to our next question. Yeah, I mean, with the wine again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I like this question because it ab absolutely infuriates me as well. And I love having righteous anger. Um, so for those of you in public, oh, this is from user Little Book Thief. Ooh, nice. <laughs> for those of you in public libraries, do your managers work weekends? Basically the title, I work at a library where a manager does not work weekends or evenings because, in quote, she doesn't have to, and wants to spend time with her family. We have a small department. I'm wondering what other public library department managers do. What? I'm like, so say we all? Isn't everybody <laughs> wants to? I don't want to work weekends either. Oh my god. Hi. Homegirl. Our managers, yes. I'm a manager. Yeah. I work weekends. I work evenings. Um, uh, yeah. Wow. Um, I, mean, I don't think you can get away with that. Like, yeah, even our managers on the highest of levels, our city librarian at the very top to my manager, the regional manager, to our branch managers, they all work weekends. They yeah. And they work hard and they have longer hours because some of those upper positions aren't unionized and um and or like have different expectations for work hours so they work weekends and they work long hours mm -hmm. so i i would say if your managers aren't doing that that's not, not good <laughs> you should not be a manager at all if they're not willing like i don't think you should ask something from your staff that you are not willing to do mm -hmm. 
so if the fact that she's like, I want to spend time with my family and I don't have to, I'm like, bitch, then step down. Go work the <laughs> working in libraries if you're wanting every weeknight and weekends off. That's just, it's not, you're not going to be able to do it. And the only way you're going to get away with that is to be a, a collection librarian or something where you work yeah, in the basement. Yeah, working like technical services and your catalogs and stuff, and that's all you do. And it's just Monday through Friday, eight to five, and you can find a job like that. But yeah, no, um, especially since uh, I'm over our outreach and our communications team, and I also um, work at locations occasionally too. I'm all almost whenever times are normal, most of my hours are nights and weekends because that's outreach, covering for locations, you know, different things like that. And my hours are insane. Like, I don't remember the last time I worked 40 hours. It's always more than 40 hours a week. So that's just, it boggles my mind. Well, and clearly, and too, it's a problem because as you know indicated with this post and we all know if you have managers that aren't contributing that aren't showing that they're willing to work alongside you as like that's a great way to breed resentment in your staff and that gets ugly really fast yeah the answer is yes my (laughs) man work weekends and nights Uh, me as a manager i work weekends and nights and I'm sorry that you're having to deal with that. That's awful. All right, this next question is posted by Teacher Tish, who asks, virtual programming for parents, any ideas? I'm at a new library and working slowly to build up the virtual programming for families, which hasn't been offered until I came on board. One piece of feedback I've gotten from the administration is that there isn't a way for families, especially new families, to organically get to know one another and learn from each other. The baby story time in the past was an opportunity for parents to connect, and they often formed natural cohorts that moved through the various levels of library programming together. I'm brainstorming ideas, but was wondering if anyone had tried to implement a virtual program targeting parents instead of kids, and how you structured it. We have like adult programming virtual programs. Mostly they're like book clubs and, um, you know, we've had some resume help classes and some book recommendation videos, but honestly, most of our program has been geared towards kids. But I don't know if we've had anything that is specifically with parents in mind. And it's not a bad idea. Um, so I've been attending this thing called a connection club uh, that's been being run by Kat Velos, the author of We Should Get Together, which is a great book about adult friendship and how to maintain those friendships. And it's basically a club where you set aside time every week to write letters or to work on a gift for a friend as a way of connecting with your friends so that you keep track of them, especially during the pandemic. And I just love the way that she structures the meetings how she does the breakout sessions and, and everything. I just really love the way she runs her like online club basically. And I have this idea that I brought to my manager, but it just looks like there isn't space in our programming lineup to do this kind of virtual programming, but I will give the idea out into the world in case another library wants this idea. Cause I thought it was really cool, but the idea of a story time connections, which wasn't, 
uh, like a companion to a story time program that's, uh, or maybe like family time connections or call it something. People know what story time is, so that's a way you could like rope people in. But the idea behind it would be that there would be like a little brief thing where the librarian at the beginning of a Zoom type program would give some tips about how to read to your child and how to learn at home. And then you would have breakout sessions where the parents would talk to each other about what they're doing at home and how they're uh, coping with now being the sole educator of their young preschool age child and how that's going and, and sort of be a support group for each other. Kind of like an informal club, uh, trying to mimic that time after story time when parents talk to each other. That's awesome. That's a really yeah. Um, I know that we're um, also overloaded with virtual programming right now, but we're going to be looking at like, okay, what should we continue? What should we stop? And then maybe come up with some other ideas instead. And that's not a bad idea. I might say, hey, um, so my friend who works in Seattle had this amazing idea. <laughs> I think we might. So I don't know if we're going to be able to do it. Um, but yeah, no, that's, I like that. And mm -hmm. you know, market it well to, so parents would know what exactly to expect. Because I think that is a big thing that I've heard from my friends who are parents. You know, I mean, they're struggling for sure, trying to work from home and take care of their kids. Um, and I think that something like that would be really beneficial to them. I like that idea. Yeah, that's amazing. My idea was maybe have a book club for parents. <laughs> <laughs> parents especially for parents that like with during COVID and for kids at a young age, they mm -hmm. don't really have time to read. Um, so that's not super helpful. And ch honestly, like children's and programming for parents and stuff is not my strong suit. Um, I very much think more about like teen programming, adult programming. That's the stuff that I'm more interested in. And so. I was going to say, it's, yeah, children's programming is not my wheelhouse at all. But for parents, I would say it depending on how detailed you wanted to get, because I really think, Amanda, like the idea that it's like a short, like maybe 10, maybe 15 minutes, like, like that's all the time people have, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if they're working from home and schooling from home and trying to feed and keep small humans alive and big humans alive too. Mm -hmm. Maybe offering like small group sessions where people could fill out, like go to a library website, fill out a short form, and then you could like host small groups like with for people based on their children's ages, maybe be able to host one in in Spanish and then do that that kind of breakout where they get to talk to each other and it's not a library staff member so much mm -hmm. driving, just as observing to facilitate so they can have those conversations. Yeah. I also really like the idea of being able to pair that kind of program with physical materials that you can get out to people. So if you're doing a curbside type thing, maybe you could buy a bunch of paperback copies of the same picture book and, you know, do a read along and then do a breakout oh, yeah. session where all the parents get to talk to each other or something like, I feel like there's a way to kind of connect it all together. It just depends on your current budgetary situation and uh, capacity for this kind of thing. 
Okay, so that leads us to the end of our podcast, which means it's time for the Goodreads review. Y'all missed that last week, didn't you? Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) So in line with our elections theme, I thought I would pick The President is Missing by Bill Clinton and James Patterson. What? (laughs) You know neither of them wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) I... I don't know. Yeah, they probably just like talked into a recorder and then somebody had to transcribe that mess and make it into a book that was worth reading. Um, So Callum on Goodreads rated it one star with the following review. Imagine if Bill Clinton got nude, covered himself in grease, and rolled around on a pile of his old photos while James Patterson took some candid shots of the action with a cheap camera. This is a lot like that. Nasty. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that was hand on head. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Nasty. <laughs> Thank you, Callum. <laughs>